Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I had the great joy of speaking with David Eagleman. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist who specialises in brain plasticity, time perception, synesthesia and the intersection of science with social policy. As you can imagine, it was a fantastic conversation. He is also, as I remarked at the time, like a jolly Sherlock Holmes. Like he's got a really bonhomous, upbeat, optimistic, ah-shucks-ish type of goodwill about him but he's fucking loaded with data he's you know, clever it's brilliant he's adjunct professor at stanford university a new york times best-selling author and head of the center for science and law um hey have you signed up to my mailing list yet you should do it's at russellbrand.com you can check out my youtube channel for spiritual videos you should subscribe to that and post them around and get in touch with me on social media on twitter i'm at rusty rockets with the hashtag under the skin instagram tiktok linkedin it's at russell brand let's have a listen to some of your little comments about uh helena norberg hodge helena norberg hodge helena norberg hodge she buddha said russell thank you for doing humanity the service of reconnecting to truth by having conversations with pure and brilliant minds well you've got some great ones coming up mate ricky gervais coming soon uh david eagleman to listen to right now Dr. Shafali, absolutely fantastic. Or have you heard that already? She's, yeah, you've heard that already by now, won't you? But God, wasn't she wonderful? Utopia is emerging. Thank you, She Buddha. I agree with you. It's being born. Where would the old, where would the new world be born from but the old? Ruth's home. What an incredible woman. Cali Girl 72, just wondering how one could help. I know I want to help and make a difference, just not sure what way. Thanks for sharing. Well, Cali Girl 72, I reckon, mate. Just keep, like I was told on this very podcast by both Michael Beckwith and Michael Singer separately, and it's something I've had verified elsewhere. We don't need to strategize, come up with tactics and plans. We simply need to make ourselves ready. And I suppose that means spiritual preparation. Not that we're going to spend our lives in passive meditation, just that once we are awakened, we will see the path more clearly. You, you're joining me there. And my guest today is Mabel Ray Brand. How's it going, Mabel? <laughs> you're very good well, that's a very good insight first lady 84 going to keep up with your podcast at russell brand very interesting right up my street thanks mate glad you like it right well without further ado let's get into david eagleman there's a lot of hard information in this beautifully explained he's a great educator communicator and teacher and i think you're gonna love this i know I, I just was overwhelmed by him absolutely adored him he was terrific Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Everyone's in love with you, David. Yeah. Everybody loves you. The whole world loves you. You're thought of as a sexy scientist. I mean, I don't know what that must be like. Pretty great. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We all live our lives inside our own heads. And so it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to know what anything is like to be otherwise. If only you'd done some studies on the, the complexity of that idea. Yes. Yes. That's what I've... Um, so I spent the last 25 years doing, um, 
we're making some progress, but it's interesting because the question of the question of consciousness, what it's like to be on the inside, as as you probably know, it's one of the big unsolved questions of neuroscience still. In other words, the question of how do you put together a bunch of pieces and parts and have it feel like something. I read an essay. Have you read that essay by Richard Scharf on experience where he kind of disabuses the Occidental, this abuses us of the Occidental assumption that Eastern religions are more personal and intimate as opposed to doctrinaire, scholastic and scriptural. And it's like, so when he breaks it down by sort of saying, you know, like I suppose you would, one would with any academic um, discourse by saying, look, this is where that idea emerges from. There's no... There's no evidence that people, you know, at the origins, the point of origin of Zen mysticism, we're talking about the significance of the personal experience. It's already quite scholastic. I mean, oh, bloody hell, David. I mean, yes, not only is it difficult to conceive of, obviously, I can't imagine how such a thing could ever be resolved. Yeah, that's this is um, one of the big problems we face is it's it's not clear how you'd ever set up an experiment to actually do this. So, so the hope is that we're going to end up with theoretical um, frameworks where it becomes clear how consciousness emerges from that. And then, you know, and it may be that if you just get enough pieces and parts together in the right ways, then, um, you know, imagine our textbooks 100 years from now, we might look at it and say, oh, okay, that's pretty clear. That's how consciousness emerges, maybe we'll realize that um, the city of London is conscious or San Francisco is conscious, right? If you just get enough stuff together, all the pieces and parts interacting, um, maybe it's something you can't help. And, and then there are people who think that maybe consciousness is a fundamental property of the universe um, so that in the same way that you know you have elementary particles with spin up or spin down or you have gravity that consciousness is something where if you get enough stuff together, it just, it's, um, it's expressed. Is that panpsychism? Yeah, that's exactly right. Panpsychism. And so, yeah, it's very, it's very weird because in neuroscience, you know, there's lots of studies that we set up and we run all the time, but that one area, which is of course fundamental to everything about being a brain owner, um, we're we're still stuck at the starting gate there. I was thinking earlier when I knew that I would be having the privilege of speaking with you that that how like, through whatever um, amplification of whatever sense, how would it be possible ever to abstract ourselves from? the limitations of our sensory instruments and and our the limitations of our capacity for knowledge i was thinking whatever data is put in it's like it's being put into a red dye so it's always going to be dyed red because it's always having to pass through the nexus of our understanding and experience so it's I thought I, I wondered how it could ever be understood. Yeah. Well. Okay. Good. So this is um, this is a, a very new area, and this is what I've devoted myself to almost entirely for the last several years, which is the question of how we get data into the brain. And so you know, we come to the table with eyes and ears and nose and mouth and fingertips and all this stuff, 
and that's how we get data in. Um, how the data gets in there, though, is all as electrochemical spikes. So in other words, um, when photons hit my eyes or air compression waves hit my ears or molecules hit my nose, that gets turned into these spikes where neurons you know, pop off. And all that happens inside my head, it's just blackness and, and lots of these spikes. So the question is, how does the brain ever know that that is supposed to be vision and that's supposed to be hearing and that is smell because it all looks exactly the same on the inside. In, in other words, if I were to show you a little piece of, of brain tissue and you were to see all these spikes and if I were to ask you, hey, is that visual cortex you're looking at or auditory? You couldn't tell me. I couldn't tell you because it all looks exactly the same. So you may know this, but this led me some years ago to figure that we might be able to feed new kinds of data streams into the brain and, you know, develop conscious perception of them in the same way that we have vision or hearing or things like that. So, so I built uh, with, with my team a, um, a wristband, um, and it's got vibratory motors on the inside. We started by building a vest, but now, now it's a wristband. And this can turn whatever data stream into patterns of vibration on the skin. And um, the question we're pursuing now is, can you develop a completely new sense of something? Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it still may be dyed red, as you said, because, in, you know, fundamentally it's passed into the brain of a human. But the, the idea is, do we have to be limited to vision and hearing and smell? Or is that just what we happen to have inherited from a complex road of evolution? And of course, across the animal kingdom, you have animals with very different sorts of sensors, like heat pits or electroreception or magnetoreception, all kinds of things. Yeah. And it's kind of impossible for us to map what that might be like, you know, like in Nagel's famous essay, it's hard for us to understand what it's like to be a bat because how can we ever understand echolocation other than what you're experimenting with right now with these skin vibration watches yeah yeah i i have a feeling that if this works well and people develop new sorts of senses there might be sort of like a speciation event in in our within humans by which i mean if you're wearing a wristband and uh feeling twitter and i'm wearing a wristband and feeling infrared light and someone over there is feeling the stock market and we develop direct perceptual experiences of it, there may be a sense in which we cannot communicate that to each other. Because I would say, um, <clears throat> what, uh, what, I'm feeling infrared light, right? So I say, hey, Russell, I, you know, I have a feeling there's one of those night vision cameras over there and I can, yeah, I can tell where it is. And you say, oh, well, I can tell that people are talking about the American election in this way on Twitter. And our friend over there says, hey, I can tell that oil is crashing right now and it feels a particular way. Like it actually feels bad to me. The, the point wow. is that we might end up with very different perceptions and there's no way to communicate it with each other. Even within the field of the more mundial, in uh, David Foster Wallace's essay on Tracy Austin and the disappointment of her ghosted autobiography it's called like Centre Court or something I can't remember the name but he says that the disappointment of the sports biography 
in essence, is we, the sports fan, want to read a sports biography and for them to be able to tell us this is what it's like when you hit that stroke or score that goal. And he says that they can never do that because not being present or being and not being able to articulate it is somehow the essence of what they do. That if you were like me or any other non genius athlete you would be oh no those people are looking at me where do I kick the ball you know that, that it's like they're dealing with stimuli in a, in a way that is somehow alien or at least particular that is exactly right um <clears throat> you know some years ago I wrote a book called sum s-u-m and yeah I got it oh great great and one of the story great. maybe you remember the story is um about in the afterlife you get to choose what you want to be in the next life and so um, and, you know, you can choose to be, for example, a horse. And as you get transformed into a horse, you realize at the last minute the problem you forgot, which is the more you become a horse, the more you forget what it was like to be a human wishing it was a horse. And, and, uh, and just as you uh, are ending up there, you painfully ponder what magnificent extraterrestrial creature chose in the last round to be a human as they were seeking extra simplicity. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. But the reason I wrote that story is, is exactly because of this thought about how impossible it is to be in someone else's head ever, to, to know what it's like to be that athlete in the situation or to be another animal or to, um, you know, for example, I, um, at this moment in my life, I'm dealing with... Um, you know, several friends in the community who are blind and who are deaf and things like that. Um, this has to do with the sensory substitution that we're building. But what's interesting is if you're, for example, born blind, there's absolutely no way that you can understand what vision is. So, so you, Russell, could try to say, look, it's, it's like this and blah, blah. And, and, and you try, and there's no pot. They might pretend to understand you in the end, but they can't. Um, you know, the idea of capturing photons from a distance and knowing what's there. And it's just totally foreign. I, I did stand up, David, on the um, on a similar idea where I speculated, how would you ever explain the sense, a sense of smell to someone who didn't have a sense of smell? Or if nobody had a sense of smell, the idea of distinctions between paint and bacon and what it is on a, a, a on a microbial level to have a sense of smell. And I use that as a sort of axis to explore the possibility that when we talk about God or mysticism, what we're talking about is... Well, on some level, matter, but certainly energy or something that is beyond the realm and abilities of our sensory instruments. I like. I mean, I recognise as a Stanford neuroscientist, you're unlikely to be particularly tolerant of woo-woo. But what I've seen you speak somewhat about, you know, these gaps between the points of uh, knowledge and points of the known. And what do do you have time even to look at sort of scriptural knowledge? And have you seen things? in any uh, theological writing that seems to you to be inferring or reaching towards some things that you have encountered through scientific study? Here's what I'd say. I, I have not had time to look at any scriptural knowledge. Um, I am a lover of literature, though. And in fact, as an undergraduate, I majored in, in British and American literature um, because that was my first love. Um, if I were, 
if you would allow me to expand from scriptural to literature in general, um, there is a there is something that that can capture that um, that the science can't. I mean, there's this you know if you've heard me talk about this before, you know my view on this, which is that science is the most powerful tool that humankind has ever had to do things and to push forward the boundaries of ignorance. But at some point, at some point, there are questions that we can't ask um, scientifically, you know, questions about meaning or, um, you know, whoa, um, yeah, falling in love with your spouse. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, that the scientific vocabulary and way of testing doesn't quite capture. So, um, so that's where this other stuff kicks in. And that's why we, uh, as a society, write books and have religions and so on. So we can tackle these bigger sorts of questions. It's a different way of, of knowing something. It doesn't necessarily have the same rigor. And my impression, correct me if you have a different take on it, my impression is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that people point to in scripture that they say, hey, this is like quantum mechanics, which was discovered later. I think that's probably pulling from, uh, you know, a vast pool and finding something that looks alike. It's not necessarily doing the same job as, as science. Um, yeah, I think it would be reductive to make sort of a d direct parallels between like, you know, a particular passage perhaps of the Bhagavad Gita and say quantum theory about which I know, you know, even less than most people. But like it's like, but there are sort of things that seem to poetically suggest the you know like a realm of limitless possibilities that are simultaneously occurring while not happening at different points in space and time, which in themselves are com constructs based on the limitations of our senses. Like that, for me, that's like in the rhythms, patterns, and poetry of Ayurvedic literature in particular. I sort of feel the kind of things that I get from you know from scientists that are able to communicate on a popular and you know in lay terms i sort of feel like oh yeah this this is the same thing this is the same thing and i know it's of interest to you david that um i can i I'll put it this way like that as science becomes the dominant dogma of our time and i you know i'm I don't mean to say that science is all dogmatic because of course science is about you know what you can prove what you can demonstrate but there are biases within science the kind of questions that get asked the kind of experiments that are done the kind of questions that aren't asked the experiments that aren't done and a kind of the sort of implication that if something cannot be proven it is it can't be prioritized and I've speculate and i'm unable to really fully articulate that, that there is a connection between individualism materialism consumerism and a particular kind of faith in in uh, a, a, a pious science that um that where the value of empiricism is used to kind of undermine those vast territories that we briefly touched upon in the field of say literature or theology that's interesting. I don't know that I immediately see the connection. Um, I mean, in this country, for example, there's a real emphasis on individualism. There's also a real emphasis on religion. And, um, and that often goes counter to the, to the progress of science. So I'm not sure I immediately see the... 
I would say that sort of well, if you look at it like the like America is also you know like one you'd have to explicitly at least or constitutionally a secular country, and 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 what I suppose I'm saying is that if the, what is most important is what we can demonstrate and prove, then what we are, then what I am ultimately and above all else is an individual. And if what I am above all else is an individual, then my rights, is, and this is sort of just the post-enlightenment rationalist perspective, like in a sense um, amplified by time or progress. You know, if, if my individualism is what's important, what I can get is what's important. We don't know what's after life. We can't see that we're interconnected and in symbiosis with our planet. That sounds just like so much woo-woo, frou-frou, clap-trap stuff. You know, like that I, I, I sense that there is a corollary between I my first role is as an individual what you can feel and touch and obtain is what's important and, and, and what is capitalism other than that what is gdp what is you know ecology at the expense of profit i have to say I, my intuition isn't the same as yours on this because i feel like it is the science that has given us all the data about the interdependence and about climates and about ecosystems and about animals and what's going on there. It's exactly the, the science that says, look, let's gather the data. Let's look at what's going on. Let's look at the consequences of this and that. So, um, yeah, I can't argue with that. You're right. You're 100% right. But perhaps do you think then, if I could modify it, that the sort of inf like that our our political and economic systems are not a reflection of the discoveries of that interdependency, but rather of a kind of seem to support systems of dominance. So whilst I can't lay the blame at the door of science, you've completely, uh, yeah, you've crushed that in a, a sentence. Um, like you, but like it, it, there are certain economical imperatives that seem to be served by individualism. And why is there not more emphasis, cultural emphasis at least, on the, this interconnectivity, on this oneness? Why are those stories not told? Why do those stories not hit home? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, let me say two things about that. One is, and you know, we don't want to talk about this, but we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic right now. And um, what is absolutely amazing to me is the place that science and public health sits here. I mean, the whole society is sheltered in place and the economy is suffering from this, but all because scientists and doctors have said, look, here's exactly what's going on. Here's how it spreads. Da, da, da. There's this invisibly small thing that you can't even see, but we're telling you, here's what you need to know and please shelter in place. And so the whole world is shut down in a good way. I mean, in a very unbelievably useful way because of what's going on in science. And that feels to me like not an individualistic thing. That's a collective thing um, that is given by that. Um, the, damn it, I forgot the second thing, yeah. I suppose that the, the point that I'm building towards is the relationship between materialism and capitalism and science and capitalism. And I, I would say the bogus claim of objectivity made by any endeavour that operates under the auspices and control to a degree, even if not explicit control, certainly to a degree financial control of a broader, if invisible, ideology. Um, say, for example, the pharmaceutical industry, say. Okay. I mean, here, here's what I'd say. It, it is the case, 
And I hadn't realized this until recently, actually, when I was reading Yuval Noah Harari's uh, Sapiens. I hadn't quite clocked that the scientific projects that get funded, at least at a, at a high level, are the projects that governments are interested in for one reason or another. It doesn't always have to be military control or something, but it's, you know, it could be diseases that are uh, relevant to the population or whatever. But I hadn't quite clocked that science is not all fronts forward at once, but it's those things that are getting funded. So there is a, an economic engine behind that. Um, that said, to, uh, my field, neuroscience, um, there's a lot of extremely interesting stuff that gets funded that for example, has to do with interconnectedness. So you may know about this new field I've published a lot in this area called social neuroscience, which is precisely about how brains interact with one another. So this is, um, uh, I have a show on the BBC called The Brain, and one of the episodes is called Do I Need You? And it's precisely about this whole issue about our interconnectedness. Um, just take as one example, the issue of, of empathy, right? So if we're talking and, um, and, and your microphone breaks and it, it, it lands on you and you say, ouch, I'll, I'll actually cringe because I, I feel the pain that you're feeling. It's not, it's not exactly the same way. I'm not feeling it somatically, but there's a, there's a part of my brain that lights up when you get hurt. And, and this is true uh, across everybody. So if you see a, just as an example, a syringe needle get poked into my hand, that lights up areas of your brain that we call the pain matrix that's involved in your feeling of pain as though you had a needle stabbed into your hand. So I've uh, done studies on this. Actually, let me take you. This is very interesting. Um, what we did is we measured 132 people in the, in the brain scanner when they watched a, a needle get poked into a hand. Um, and we measured their pain matrix light up. But then what we did is put a one-word label on each hand. There were six different hands, and we labeled them. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, Scientologist, Hindu. And now the computer picks a hand. You see the hand get stabbed, and the question is, does that change your low-level brain response about how much you care about the other person getting hurt, given whatever your in-group is and what your out-groups are? And the answer is it does change it. It does change it. Every but We measure people of all religions, including atheists, by the way, and everybody cares more about their in-group and their brain cares less about their out-group, um, which is a, it's a, a horrifying but true thing. But this is true with in-groups and out-groups with everything. Um, but that said, I, I, I want to come back to the main point, which is that so much of the circuitry of our brains has to do with other people has to do with being involved in other people, um, everyone in your life, your friends, your spouse, your everybody, you're running rich models of them. You're, you're essentially, you've essentially got, you know, however many people you're close with, let's just call it 100 or 1,000 people, you're running simulations of all of them. You could predict how they would react to something. We're incredibly social creatures. You're right. I mean, just to hear you uh, beautifully explain that, it's obvious that we've all evolved in conjunction and in harmony with one another, that the idea of a, of a brain without relationship would be a, I'm sure those experiments have been done somewhere at some time, that, that what, who knows what that would produce. 
Yeah, actually, it was done in the 60s. Um, a scientist uh, whose name will come to me after I have just a little more coffee, he, he did this, exp Harry Harlow is his name. He um, did experiments where he looked at monkeys in isolation. So he would take a baby monkey and put it uh, in isolation without others. And these monkeys grew up to be very mentally damaged. And, um, and then he inseminated some of these females to see how they would be as parents and they were awful as, as parents. This was a one-time experiment. It's never been done again because he was, I think, appropriately heavily criticized for even doing the experiments because we already knew that, we're, that all animals are incredibly social and you can damage an animal quite badly that way. And, and you may know, by the way, there's a lot of studies where kids are raised in orphanages, for example, in Romania with the fall of Ceausescu, tens of thousands of children ended up in these orphanages and it was too many children for the staff to take care of appropriately. So what the staff did is they said, look, don't touch the children, don't talk to the children, because if you do, they'll become clingy and, and we can't afford that staff-wise. And so these kids grew up with a really diminished IQ um, and a really impoverished capacity for, for everything, for speaking, for socializing and so on. Um, we are creatures that require social input from day one and touching and hugging and talking to and so on. That's very beautiful. And I felt that pain response that you described with the needle uh, example when you said that, the idea of those children being denied attention and even the monkey, I didn't like that much. So, yeah, I felt some. It's what reassures me that I'm not actually a psychopath is moments, <laughs> moments like that. Um, well, that's uh, that's uh, beautiful, David. Um, like, do you think that um, that the examples you've just cited would have a uh, that that what those that monkey and those children are denied? Do you think if we had the right instruments, we would somehow be able to read it? Given what you said earlier in the conversation about those sort of relatively neutral-looking spikes in whatever that was you said neural activity i guess um like do you think that if we had the right instruments somehow that that would be lurid or fluorescent you would be able to see people scarred by trauma somehow yeah someday i'll tell you right now in 2020 our technology for reading brains is still quite crude someday um, hopefully in our lifetimes, we'll be able to read it much better. And actually, you know, there are 86 billion neurons in the brain. Neurons are the specialized cell type. And that's um, about how many stars you find in a galaxy, in the Milky Way galaxy. So it's an incredibly huge, complex thing. And each neuron is firing, you know, 10 or hundreds of times per second. So if every spike were giving off a photon of light, it would be blinding. I mean, you, you, could, you can't imagine a system with this much stuff going on. So we don't have any capacity to read this well right now. What we use is what's called functional magnetic resonance imaging, which essentially just gives us blobs where the activity just was. Um, but the point is, someday we'll get to a point where we can really read out a brain. Then the challenge is going to be, how do we decode that well? But when that is done, I don't know, 100 years from now, um, yeah, I think we'll be able to read all kinds of things like that. And actually, one of the things I've been wondering about is, you know, will we be able to read somebody's history the way that we find 
an ancient scroll and we read what's going on there. Um, and it seems possible. <laughs> you beautiful optimist. That's so lovely. Um, David, um, with uh, neuroplasticity, does, what does that mean for people that have been traumatized or addicted? Does it mean we form, do we really form new neural pathways when we learn new habits? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Everyone's born into the world with, with whatever genes you come to the table with. And then your experiences mold you from there. And the way I think of it is like a, a cone of, of, you know, people describe, physicists uh, talk about space time in this way as a cone. But the point is that you start at the bottom of the cone and then your individual trajectory goes off in very different directions based on your experiences, based on whether you were loved or abused as a child, based on whether you got addicted to drugs or not, based on every experience you've had, every friend, every... Um, every uh, girlfriend, every thing that's happened to you um, sends you off on a different trajectory. The reason I mention this cone is because there's only a certain breadth that you can go off into. You can't sort of go off in this other direction here just because you come to the table with particular genes that you know determines half of who you are. Um, just as a quick side note, there used to be a big debate that people would have about nature versus nurture. That debate's totally dead because it's clearly both. They interact with one another. Your genes provide the possibilities and your experiences provide the, the trajectory from there and they, they feed back on one another. Oh, wow. Um, well, from your studies with uh, synesthesia, what, do, what does that tell us about the way that we receive, decode, interpret, and appreciate information. Yeah. So, so uh, for anyone who doesn't know, synesthesia is this condition that uh, where people have a mixture of the senses. So you might look at some letters and that triggers a color experience for you. Or you might hear something that puts a taste in your mouth. Or you taste something that puts a feeling on your fingertips. Um, it's essentially like, you know, some crosstalk in the brain that um, isn't, isn't held by the majority of the population. So it used to be thought that synesthesia was quite rare, but we now know that it's uh, about 3% of the population. So it's not that uncommon. And the main thing it demonstrates to us is that, is that perception can be different from person to person. Um, there's not, you know, synesthesia is not considered a, dis a disorder or a disease of any sort. It's just an alternative way of perceiving the world. And so, um, and, and, you know, you mentioned a minute ago, you joked about not being a psychopath. And, and of, of course you're not because you're very empathic. You care about other people. Psychopaths do not. But the interesting part is that even psychopathy is on a, is on a spectrum. And it demonstrates that you can be a human being but have a very different view on the world. You see someone get hurt and you don't care at all because you're <laughs> psychopathic. And, and, you know, if you're a synesthete, you're seeing this. If you're a psychopath, you're seeing that. If you have schizophrenia, you're completely in a different theater of the mind. Um, we're all trapped inside our own reality. And, um, and the best we can do is struggle to understand what it is like to be somebody else, to be that great athlete, to be a synesthete, to be a psychopath. Um, yeah, it's 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 surprising. I think this is one of the the passages into maturation. Um, when you start off as a as a kid, you imagine that everybody is just like you, 
Um, and as you get older, you realize that people can, are, are quite different. <laughs> well, I, when uh, our daughter was born, the midwife said, oh, you know, initially when you're born, her senses are so limited. She's kind of deaf. She kind of can't see. She's sort of entombed in a kind of this world deprived of senses you know she said it in a very just you know colloquial this is what it is to be a baby type thing and my wife in particular sort of said i i feel for her in there sort of lonely in there in this where there is not the the bridge of senses to connect us um i on hearing that ever since then have speculated that we are remain on this spectrum of isolation with all relationship and external stimuli and phenomena experienced through the senses and interpreted on a, you know what could be an incredibly unique in an incredibly unique way and that 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 isolation in a sense continues is there anything to suggest and i know what you said about the necessity of relationship and empathy in sort of child rearing and socializing animals etc but is there anything that suggests that there is physical connection in the same way we might understand external oxygen going into the bloodstream. Do you mean in terms of touch, in terms of being touched on the skin, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. And like the way we feel, or is my, is my, is my relationship with my wife a terrible Oliver Sacks style conundrum just happening in my own brain and nowhere else? Yeah. Oh, I mean, for better or worse, it is totally happening within your own brain. Your entire representation of your wife including what she looks like, what she sounds like, and all that stuff is happening inside your brain. Um, and, and your simulations of her, you know, how will she react if I say this and that, and all those thoughts, that all, every bit of that's happening inside your brain. Um, and then we have our fingertips and, and her skin, and, and there's this, you know, very thin interface where you can touch her and she can touch you, and, and you guys are communicating across across this weird boundary. I, I tell you, I, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about this issue of how we're all trapped inside our own brains. And I saw a poster for that Matt Damon movie, The Martian, where he's standing alone on a planet. And I thought, that's it. We're, we're all on our own planet. And we've got this interface where we can touch each other and, of course, communicate with each other. But language is very low bandwidth. Um, and so, you know, happily, happily, we're enough alike that a lot of good communication happens. And we can pick up, a, you know, a play by Shakespeare, which was written hundreds of years ago. And there's enough there where I feel like, oh, there's a message in a bottle from across the centuries because he's like me in certain ways and so on. So, you know, happily, in general, we're all enough alike. But there, um, it is weird that we're all on our own planet. That's beautiful. Is, does that suggest that there are indeed then some universals at the core or perhaps the essence of our being, even for culture to be able to operate? And and because there are from a from a physical perspective, we are so similar from a biochemical and organic perspective we are so similar do, do, if there because to say that there is you know as would be contemporarily understood the, you know the idea of there being a universal or universals is sort of attacked and under, undermined 
where do you, what do you, what do you, what do you know about that from a neuroscientific perspective? I think it's somewhere in between, which is to say, <clears throat> people try to come up with universals all the time. Just as an example, um, with things like beauty, what kind of paintings do people like? And so, you know, people do EEG studies. Where they put electroencephalograms on someone's head and they measure how they respond to scenes of different complexity, really simple, super complex, somewhere in between, and they make conclusions. Okay, people like paintings or visual scenes of this complexity. Um, but the problem is every time someone suggests there is a universal, people come out with an argument demonstrating that not everybody likes that. So I think instead of thinking of it as universal or not, it's more like a, a hill or something where, you know, most humans tend to be gathered up at the top of the hill and there's some lower down um, it's not a binary thing where there are clear universals, um, and and it's and it's surprising, right? Because again, it's when we grow up as children, we expect. Well, of course, of course, they're like. Yeah, let me give you an example. Um, my my father is a psychiatrist and was involved in forensic psychiatry. So whenever there was a big mass murder case in the Southwest where I grew up, um, he would get called in to do uh, an assessment and an interview with the, with the murderer um, to, you know, to find out what was happening under the hood, what was ticking in there. And so um, I remember I was with my dad. I was like, I don't know, 10 years old. I was at a party with him and um, there was this guy who'd been convicted of murder and had been sentenced to death. And somebody at the party said, I'll bet, I'll bet that guy feels a lot of regret for what he's done. And my father was sort of surprised by that and said, no, he, he doesn't feel regret. When, when he thinks about going to kill somebody, he describes it, this guy, as a, the feeling that he had as a child on the night before Christmas. That's the level of excitement that he has when he thinks about murdering somebody. And, and, and as a kid, I remember feeling like, that can't be true. He must feel regret. I mean, I agreed with this other guy. But it took, me, it took me years to realize that people can be very different on the inside. And, and you may know, I, I direct this uh, national law and profit called the Center for Science and Law, where we look at how neuroscience intersects with the legal system. And that's one of the things that we come to realize is that people can be very different on the inside. And if you look in a prison system, you know, everyone has suggestions for what to do with prisoners in the prison system. But the fact is, what is often overlooked is that it's on a huge spectrum. Not every murderer is the same. Not every rapist is the same. Not every prostitute is the same. Not every drug addict is the same. People are not doing things for the same reasons. If you're a judge and people are standing in front of the judge's bench, they've all done the same crime. They could have done it for totally different reasons. And so what that means is we can't imagine that incarceration is the one-size-fits-all solution but instead, what I argue for is to have customized rehabilitation strategies where we're really trying to understand what is going on with each person and what could actually be useful. Bloody hell, that's amazing. What an incredible, necessary and important endeavor. The cynic in me imagines that the dominant ideas that govern the penal system aren't necessarily interested in genuine rehabilitation and that the penal system is it in, lives in interconnectivity with many other institutions that operate as a system of dominance and that so, so you may you may be right about that but what's super interesting is 
every time some county takes me up on this stuff, it is because of one reason, which is they've run out of money. So what happens is their prison is full and they see, geez, we got to build a second prison because we have too many people here. And they realize they just don't have enough money and they need another solution. And that's when they start to look at, okay, what can we do besides throw everyone in prison? So, so that's the <laughs> trap door for the system happily. <laughs> that's real cool, man. That's real cool. Uh, look, I didn't get a chance to do it at the time because you gave me a lot of information afterwards, but I really had quite a good joke when you said about that murderer feeling like it was Christmas Eve where I was going to run through a whole little set of things where I said, like, the night before, I leave knives out for the reindeers and a lot of bad taste, kind of. Then I put some poisoned footprint. I was going to just do some stuff like that, and even though the moment has clearly passed... I'd still like that to be my contribution to a conversation where you've revealed that how you spend your life is setting up an interface between science and the judiciary. I'd like to make a stupid joke about a murderous Christmas Eve. And I'd like you to remember me for that one day. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Hey, hey with, with your study of synesthesia, have you ever discovered a kind of common commonality like... Oh, everybody sees ABC as yellow. You know, what's super interesting is that everyone sees random colors. So whatever your A is and my A is, they're different colors and B and C and so on. And, um, and then what a couple of colleagues and I discovered is that starting in the early 1970s, about till the mid 80s, there were a group of people born where about 15% of synesthetes had the same colors for their alphabet. In other words, instead of being random, there were hundreds of synesthetes that we found who had A is red and B is blue and C is yellow and D is green. Wow. And, and, and so it turns out that it was because of the Fisher-Price magnet set on refrigerators that was Amazing. popular right in that time. And so... Who found that? Who found it? Who found it? Who was the person that went, hang on, look at the Fisher-Price thing? Yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, one of these colleagues who, I don't know exactly how it happened. I think a synesthete ha had contacted him and said, I think that my colors are because of this. And then what I had is this, I had set up this um, uh, program online to test synesthetes. And so I had many thousands of synesthetes colored alphabets in my database. And so I looked in the database and found that that hundreds of people had imprinted on this on this magnet set. So what that suggests to us is that the reason synesthetes alphabets all look random and different from each other in general is because what you are exposed to as a child, like whatever quilt or crayons or whatever, how you think A and B and so on, it's just because it's too hard to trace all that. And that's why it looks random. But in fact, synesthetes may just imprint on something. That's amazing. Don't you think that that shows the terrifying power of mass media if we're all getting subject to this number of Burger King commercials and we're all being bombarded with this mainstream media narrative about the toxicity of a, another country or ideology of like if you, in, you can track in synth, uh, synesthete, excuse my pronunciation, that you know the impact of these these early experiences that we may all be and your earlier experiment about uh the sort of christian or muslim hand 
having an impact on empathy? Does it make you concerned about how the interests of powerful institutions and agencies are imprinted on a populace? You know, we just can't know what the influence is. So everybody grows up influenced by whatever is in their environment. And we don't know if everyone watching um, Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, or getting exposed to some cultural myth that they have that involves animal sacrifice or something. I mean, it's not clear that that's better than everyone getting exposed to the same thing. Um, Yeah. But we know what the intentions are, do we? Do we know what the intentions are behind these institutions? And of course, that's sort of not really within your particular field, but you seem pretty happy straying out into the judiciary and philosophy and cosmology and all of these areas. And you do so quite wonderfully, if I may say. So do you think that if we know that the intention is domination, control, subjugation of a population, limitation of freedoms or freedoms within certain areas, then that likely the messaging we receive will reflect that uh, without straying too far into conspiracy territory, but perhaps a little bit. Interesting. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm more of a, I'm less of a cynic. I feel like what actually succeeds in Hollywood is, is not the, 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 the behind the scenes, we're going to dominate something, but what makes a good story and what do people like? And, um, and everybody seems to stand behind good things that are good for the world, like Mr. Rogers or Sesame Street or so on. That actually succeeds. But having a child, like if I went to Hollywood and proposed a, a television show about <clears throat> how America is so great and should dominate the world, that's not going to get picked up. No one's going to think that. <laughs> so, Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm less cynical about what things kids are exposed You're to. You're like a, a jolly Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Optimistic, like piecing together all of this data. How have you maintained your optimism while you know all this stuff? What, what did you say? What, uh, what retains my... How do you... How can you be so optimistic when you've got all of this information? The information's not making you cynical, it's making you optimistic. What do you feel about the uh, trajectory of our species and how can our understanding of neuroscience help us and change the direction, which, may I say, seems somewhat apocalyptic? Not that I am a cynic, because I believe in revolution and change and all those things, but help us. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's hard to be a scientist and not be optimistic in the sense that all you have to do is look at where the world was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. I mean... Look, I don't want to talk about the coronavirus, um, but... You can if you want. There's no embargo or anything. It's recognized it's an important and relevant topic. We're all up to our eyeballs with it, and so we're tired. Of it. But, but I will say, when you compare it to the 1918 epidemic or, or the Black Death in Europe or any of the things that came before it, what we're doing now, you know, it sucks to do lockdown, and we're all griping about it while we're on Zoom with our friends. But the fact is... We are, you know, first of all, we can control things like diarrhea and fever in a way that we couldn't 100 years ago. And so lots of people died, unfortunately, that that didn't need to. Um, And now we have these instantaneous communication networks where we can shut down the whole globe and give people information. And so it's just incredible where we are. Um, I, yeah, I find it very easy to maintain my optimism in the face of that or just, you know, planetary exploration all the exoplanets we've discovered 
um, have just been in the last little bit. I mean, within our lifetimes. In other words, I, I was just watching. I was just watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos. I'm showing that to my kids now because I loved that show. In fact, my son's middle name is Sagan um, because it was so influential on me that show. And uh, but anyway, Sagan is I probably in the late '70s talking to a classroom of children, and he says someday we might discover planets around other stars and actually, you know, find some within habitable zones and so on. That's where we are now. It happened after he passed away. But in the last 20 years, we've found uh, it's over 4,000 exoplanets now. Um, stuff is happening really fast, and it's really wonderful. So. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I like this idea of like that consciousness could be, um, I don't know, foundational or elementary, a sort of present at origin. Um and I, I watched your God or not God talk and I, I loved it, of course. And like, but I, I and I love that um, possibillionaires or that term that you're very flexible about. Yeah. There probably might. What if there is becomes a sectarian war between possibilitarians and possibilarians? It could get quite swift in. Yeah. The. Um... Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, d d should I should I mention what possibilism is for the? Yes, please, please. Yeah, for, for people who are listening, it's just. Um, look, the summary of it is. You know, as you watch the world, you find that there are people who have clear religious uh, places to stand, and you find that there are the people who say that's um, that's all completely wrong, and I'm going to be a strict atheist as a result. And the part as a scientist that's always struck me is there's, it's clear that these religions are totally outdated and, and incorrect in the claims they make. Um, but it's not clear to me that we can therefore say, look, there's nothing else going on because there's a very rich middle ground about our place in the cosmos and understanding what the heck we're doing here and how and why. And as we said at the beginning, all the stuff we're not seeing, there's just – that's what the heart of science is really, is trying to figure out, wow, what is this all about? And so I've, I felt dismayed a little bit uh, sometimes with my, some of my scientific colleagues who say like, look, we've got this all figured out. There's nothing else to, to talk about here because there's a lot to talk about. So the, the idea with possibilism is not to say it's this or it's that, but it's to figure out the structure of the possibility space. And um, and that's, you know, certainly where I'll spend my life is not trying to fight and die for a particular version of the story, but instead to figure out what the what the possibilities are for those stories. In a way, you know, I suppose one of the foundational ideas around mysticism, esoteric mysticism, as perhaps experienced one might argue by the rishis or the sufis is that through non-material the difficult to track trace and measure means consciousness this peculiar phenomenon this unknowable aspect can be explored piloted and you can come back from uh, voyages within consciousness with essential truths for the well-being of you know humankind the the planet harmoniously all of our interrelated shared uh, needs and but by their nature 
that you know these are happening beyond the realm of these instruments so it can it's at an incredible disadvantage in terms of it can probably certainly not with the our understanding uh, of science currently it can never be sort of really measured but that means that there's a whole sort of what do i want to say raft of information that's in a sense excluded and i've a sense that that um that that, that much of that information could be interpreted as or at least could be mobilized for fortifying our togetherness demonstrating that we have more in common than we have that separates us and that there are that there is a kind of is was it your phrase no it's a, like another like a that whilst you know there is no objective truth out there in some sense there is a kind of a, a, a oneness a you know so a like so i suppose what i'm saying is it uh, like it's covered to a degree by possibilism like the the uh, the we is is am i right in saying that the room for these kind of ideas these speculations these millennia old philosophies that don't that aren't the aspect of religion that are like hey these people shouldn't put that there and if you're born here you're not as good as the people born there but are much more about a kind of sort of a poetic understanding of compassion and love and oneness and and in fact in a sense hymns to those ideas homages homilies that are about beauty and togetherness and those things are sort of somehow discounted because they don't fit within the rubric of the ability to measure ah so let me say a couple of things one is i don't think they're discounted i think that science tries to move towards these things and that's that's for example this whole new area of, of social neuroscience and understanding how we represent each other and other people and why we care about them and so on um, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because w when I think about it from a scientific point of view, so I've got these, you know, almost a hundred billion neurons and, and you've got these hundred billion neurons and so on, and everyone in our lives has them, but we're interacting now, not in the way that I was mentioning you and your wife, you know, touch each other. I'm here in America, you're in England, but, but we're interacting with our neurons, um, communicating with each other through this low bandwidth channel of speech, but um, there's a sense in which you can look at all humans as a mega organism, where you've got this big thing over the planet, like this whole covering of algae, where it's all, we're all interacting with one another. Um, but the, the, so I think the science and the, the, let's say the mysticism, the oneness, they're coming towards each other. They're certainly moving in the, in the direction of each other. Um, the, the analogy that maybe you remember I used in that uh, possibility talk I gave is this issue about, you know, there's this pier that we're standing on of science. It's like we've walked out on the pier over the water. Um, and each year we're building more and more slats on the pier, moving out into the unknown. The water is all the stuff that we do not know. Um, and, you know, the point being that at some point, science, at any moment, there's only a certain distance that we can go out into that ocean. And so the kind of experience that you mentioned of going on a voyage of consciousness and, and seeing things and experiencing things, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely the case that science can't always get there yet. Um, but we are building new piers every year, and it always comes as a surprise 
when science looks back on where things were 50 years ago, 100 years ago to say, wow, I can't believe that people didn't know that then. But now it's easy. Now a high school kid can do this in the classroom and we can see these things. So wouldn't it be great to see our, you know, our kids' textbooks 200 years from now? What's going to be in those things? It may be that the mystical oneness, interconnectedness, maybe that's going to be standard stuff that you take as an eighth grader. You know, like how, uh, you know, Noam Chomsky says there's a universal grammar present in our consciousness and sort of like comparative mythology, a field that I know has its, uh, you know, opponents and even discreditors, like suggests that in dreams and in myth, there are emblems and archetypes that universally recur and how sort of anecdotally, because I don't know of sufficient studies that have been undertaken that people have psychedelic experiences under some observation that seem to conform to you know you know that there are at least um, consistent elements consistent images or even narratives sometimes what uh, is that something you know anything about the, the uh, that's ex- not, yes. i'm not i'm not an expert in that um what i would say though is that might point to several different kinds of things the fact Look, you asked earlier about universals that we all have as humans. It might be that, for example, when people take a drug, you know, the interesting thing about drugs is that we understand what they do at a molecular level. That does not explain to us what that does at a consciousness level. But we know that, okay, this drug binds to this receptor and it causes this cell to fire more or to block signals from this other cell or whatever. Um when I think about, for example, psychedelics, I think, God, that's interesting that this drug essentially knocks the flow of this network off by 5%. It sort of, you know, it sort of changes it in this very particular way that we can measure in terms of a network of cells. Um, and, and yet consciously, you know, people go off in, in wherever they're going. The fact that there are perhaps common things that people experience might just tell us, hey, if you take this network and you knock it 5% this way, this is what tends to happen. In the same way that we say, hey, people tend to like the smell of apple pie and not like the smell of fecal matter, and they tend to like (laughs) being stripped on their skin and they don't like this other thing. Yeah, so uh, it, it might just only tell us that, that we all have the same biology and therefore the same experiences under particular chemicals. Except, of course, consciousness is the complexity within consciousness, even compared to, you know, the complexity of the bloody subparticular or at least molecular world. I'm not suggesting that's not complex, bloody hell. But I'm saying that consciousness, it sort of seems somehow uh, ephemeral, somehow somehow unknowable with the limitations we currently experience. Much closer uh, to home, David. Like I do this um, kundalini exercise right that i'll show you it just so because you're a neuroscientist you'll understand like that you're on your knees with your heels under your butt and you inhale uh, like orally and use the abdomen to sort of create a kind of a pumping so it's like right you do that right for a while and like you know maybe 30 well i was told to do it for three seconds but because i'm a drug addict and i can never get enough i i went for the full minute like and like at the end of it you do a massive inhale after doing this pump it's called breath of fire in some yogic traditions you at the end of it you do a big inhale like that and then you hold it 
Now, I, I do it most days, and a lot of the time when I do it, what I experience, I imagine, to a neuroscientist, <laughs> might be considered fainting. <laughs> um, like, but, but, like, there's a moment during that fainting, like, where I feel my, you know, sort of what I might call my egoic, individualized perception kind of closing out. And yet, there is a kind of abiding awareness which appears to somewhat be inhabited by language aware, but not anything like where well, as soon as I come back around I'm like what the fuck was that it's like I sort of fall into a sort of another place and it's almost hard to retain like a dream or something when you come back to it would you please tell me what that is you know, uh, it's interesting. So we talked earlier about how impossible it is to know someone else's experience. So the best I can do is try to map it onto my own experience, which may or may not be the same. But I sometimes have a version of that if I'm if I'm squatting for a long time, like I'm just doing something on the ground, and then I stand up and I feel lightheaded. I'll find myself in this what sounds to me similar to what you described about you know where I am and who I am and so on. It's just this other. It's this other thing. I think it's not hard for people to get into these other states. Um, yeah, I mean, what that, one of the things this demonstrates that I've always been fascinated with is just the, the fragility of consciousness. Somehow we've got these neurons working around the clock to, not around the clock, actually, only for about 16 hours a day, to put together this thing of consciousness, but it doesn't take much to bump them into this other state. It can be kundalini, it can be standing up and getting lightheaded, it can be drugs, it can be alcohol, it can be caffeine, it can be whatever. It just doesn't take that much to knock the system into this other state where you experience something else. Um, this happens with traumatic brain injuries. People, there, you know, one of the things that is so instructive in neuroscience is looking at all the the particular kinds of disorders that people have when they get a stroke or a tumor or brain damage to particular areas, and they have whatever, they have formed hallucinations about something like, oh, I see someone walking in, or there's a, a vase of flowers on the table, or they think that this limb is no longer belonging to them, or they, you know, the, or they can't recognize furry animals anymore, or they don't see colors anymore, or whatever. Um, it just demonstrates to me how fragile this very particular state that we're in normally is. Does it, if there is this particular state, a state that seems to be induced by a particular evolutionary pathway and a accompanying cultural experience, even though, you know, we don't know that we're seeing the same colour, even though we use the same words. We've got some, you know, it seems like there's an objective reality that we're all discussing. If we talked about current affairs or whatever, when you said coronavirus, I didn't say, what the hell are you talking about? In my realm, it's strawberries. Is it possible that there's a, that there are, parallel realms of consciousness that are concurrently running with the one that we are temporarily what about that idea that consciousness is not generated from inside the brain but the brain is more like a receptor and consciousness is a uh sort of um what do i want to say if not external the kind of an absolute which you know is sort of just the same as that panpsychism thing we was talking about a minute ago that consciousness is an absolute thing and if, if a brain evolves in a particular way and you have a certain kind of cultural experience you're tuned into that if you knock it five percent you there's a whole other frequency i suppose that's why i'm looking for common stories because that suggests that there is something objectively there and, and it's going to be hard to prove that yeah no that's that's you're, you're exactly right on that so um 
uh, in my book Incognito, I wrote the whole the whole thing was about uh, the unconscious brain and the the conscious brain and so on. Um, and uh, you know, I make the argument clearly that the reason we the reason we know that consciousness has to do with the brain is because when people get damaged to their brain in very particular areas, very particular ways, we can predict what's going to happen with that. And that's how we know that this three pounds of tissue is absolutely required for conscious experience. But at the end of the book, I pointed out, I said, look, there is one thing we don't, we actually can't rule in or out with our data right now, which is that what we think is that all consciousness is contained here, but we can't rule out the idea that this is like the radio and there are radio signals coming from the outside. So I said, imagine that you were a, a primitive man and you found a, a radio in, in the sand and, and you'd never seen anything like this before. And so you being clever, you take it apart, you start looking at things, you find this jumble of wires and you start making hypotheses about how voices are being produced by these wires and it would never strike you that there are radio towers in distant cities sending invisible stuff over. Instead, what you would do is you would, you would do lesion studies where you'd say, hey, I've noticed if I pull out this wire, the voices get garbled. And if I pull out this wire, the voices stop altogether. And you'd end up being a radio materialist and you'd yeah. come to this conclusion. But you'd, you'd be missing a big part of the equation without realizing something. So we, we can't rule that out at the moment. Yeah. That's a cool metaphor, and that's sort of a bit like that. That's sort of a, obviously a much better articulation of what I was trying to sort of get to with the sort of biases of materialism. That because it's impossible, given the limitations of this sort of Stone Age sandman discovering this radio to measure radio waves or any other kind of waves, that he will say, No, I'm going to study the shit I can see. And yeah. I mean, happily, the whole history of physics, especially over the last 120 years, has been, has been about the stuff we can't see. And, and it's been very fruitful in the sense of saying, look, why, why is the universe expanding in this way? Or why does this happen? Or how does the photoelectric effect happen? And, and people have gotten very clever at, at, at leapfrogging from one thing to the next. Like, if, if this happens, it must be that there's something we cannot see. We can't smell it, touch it, taste it, anything. But it must be there. In fact, that's this whole notion of dark matter and dark energy is, you know, that's like the majority of the universe we imagine is made up of the stuff that we can't touch or taste or see or anything. And yet we imagine it, we, we assume it is there because of the way that the stuff we can see is reacting. So, you know, wow. happily, happily, we're not afraid of the invisible I'm actually, by the way, I'm actually working on my next book. It'll take years before I finish this. But the title right now is Empire of the Invisible because it's all about this. It's all about, you know, the limitations of our own sensory apparatus. Um, but we know from centuries of science about all this other stuff that is there. And we look across the animal kingdom. We see all the other ways that people can detect things. I'm just fascinated with that. We are we're seeing such a tiny piece of this. And, you know, by the way, this, this thing that I've built um, with my company is, um, is all about how can we tap into this? I'll just give you an example, which is I uh, made one that detects infrared light. And, uh, and I sort of mentioned this before, but I was walking along with a friend in the dark 
and I suddenly felt a bunch of infrared light in the dark, and I thought, what is that? And so I followed it, and it took me to the side of a house where there was one of those night vision cameras with infrared LEDs. So it was, you know, shining infrared light on us, and of course you can't see that, but it was immediately obvious to me that it was there with, uh, with wearing the wristband. And it strikes me that with the spectrum of electromagnetic radiation, you probably know this, but visible light, what we see, what we call, you know, red, orange, yellow, that takes up less than one ten trillionth of all the light that's out there. And so I have a strong suspicion that there are a whole bunch of Nobel Prizes hidden out there for people to discover accidentally, like, hey, if I'm just walking around and I'm in the radio range or the microwave range or the gamma ray range or the whatever, like, will I start picking up on things that we just hadn't realized? Uh, one second example of this, some friends of mine who run a satellite company built satellites that look in the microwave range of the electromagnetic spectrum. And... Um, and they realized accidentally that you can tell if water is drinkable or polluted just by looking at it in the microwave range. But the point is, nobody knew that before because you just had to sort of go out there and explore and realize, oh, wait, I, I see a correlation there. So I think there's a lot to be discovered. Sorry, last thing I'll say on this is you and I have grown up in a time where the whole world is mapped out. There are no new lands to discover by jumping on a ship and you know sailing around the world. But what I think we have in front of us is the opportunity to go explore a new, new land along the electromagnetic spectrum or in the empire of the invisible. Like that's our territory to go into and start finding things there. Oh my God, what a beautiful and brilliant, optimistic and upbeat way to bring this conversation to a crescendo and indeed Climax. Yes, that's precisely what we should be doing, looking to explore the empire of the invisible. When you said that, like, you know, you're writing a book, it will take you a couple of years. Like, I'm currently writing a book about God and the sacred. And I'm like, yeah, I'll probably finish that in a couple of weeks. And I, I imagine our research methods might be different. Here's some stuff that I reckon off the top of my head <laughs> versus you and friends with infrared cameras and vibrating things and data. Oh, my God. Um, but we're trying to get to the same place, David, aren't we? That's right. There are many ways to get there, I hope. Oh, that's so. Uh, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. I can sort of see why you would be astonished that someone would see murdering someone as a Christmas style <laughs> excitement sensation. You're so um, b beautifully. Um, yeah, effervescent with joy and inquiry. It's, it's it's lovely to be in your radius. Likewise with you, Russell. Are you um, when the pandemic is over? Are you traveling to America at all? Yeah, I'm planning to. I'm again this this area that I'm as best I can exploring. The discovery of the sacred is sort of what I'm interested in, and this the um, how the sacred could be revitalized in contemporary life to provide an alternative to the narrow bandwidth of current political discourse to alter sort of the uh, uh, presumptive teleologies around say nation and uh, economics that that if you if we were to somehow appreciate again that we are surrounded by these invisible realms which you you know articulate and uh, describe so beautifully that 
that we could be building all sorts of realities. This is but one possible reality. We're not operating just on it. Well, it's either you vote this or you vote that. You know, like you know, the, there's there's so many ways that we could organize reality. Yeah, <clears throat> this is exactly this is exactly by the way why I love doing public dissemination of science stuff is because I feel like it. My hope, anyway, is that it opens up people's minds to this issue of not, you know, I vote this or that, and and you're doing exactly the same thing from from the point of view of the sacred and so on. But we're all on the same thing, which is trying to break people out of the hamster wheels that is so easy for us all to get onto. I really felt that in parts of our conversation when you talked about synesthesia and like that sort of the the limited colours of the alphabet, you know, and like you said, language already so limited that we're sort of operating within systems, inhibiting systems. You know, again, like this, I hope is not at the cost of my uh, 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 general optimism, but my feeling is that we live within cult- cultural operating systems that prevent people from self-actualizing, self-realizing. And, you know, it's been, come up so many times in our conversation, the, the unconscious prejudices or whatever kind of prejudices they are indicated by the sort of, you know, the religious or non-religious denotation on the hand. And um, I... I feel like I, well, what I want to do is to make people recognize that, yes, of course, that we are all distinct, different and unique, as is evident from our DNA and even our fingerprints and our irises. But we are also bloody similar in so many ways, favoring conflict and altercation above cooperation is, um, you know, unhealthy, unhelpful, unnecessary. Yeah. I'm just curious. Do you feel like... <clears throat> The, the cultural influences that we have, um, well, actually, there are two questions. One is, no matter what culture we were to grow up in, even if it were 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, we'd have cultural influence, influences. We'd be molded by something around us. Do you, do you have a, a feeling that <clears throat> if you got someone to break out of their current cultural influence, which is probably impossible because it's so deeply embedded, but... But is there something better that you would see as the thing they should be in? Yes, I I, I do believe that. And, you know, of course, sort of to your point about it, how would you ever break someone out of their cultural influence? Because in a sense, we are our cultural influence. Where does the self end? Where does this where what is our perception fomented upon? I thought once about on a much more personal and minute level about the reason it's impossible to be objective about your mother is because you are your mother. She she taught me those words. She taught me those feelings. I, I, I How can I? I am her at some deep, deep part of me, you know, Um in some totemic way and um and, and i i feel that the answer may lie in uh, in, in our anthropology anthropological origins not in a sort of cod rousseauian way but in a sort of in a sense honoring what is it that human beings do and require organically how can we you know, rep, not necessarily replicate, I want to say sort of, it would be more like simulate in this day and age that, or at least somehow regard it, while also making use of the great technological, medical, uh, and philosophical to a degree, advances that we have made. It seems like now that all of this scientific discovery that you are describing is all getting ultimately flung into a pre-existing paradigm which will prohibit the proper um, proper 
utilization of that data because much of that data might lead to hey hang on a minute we're all the same aren't we and it's possible that all sorts of different energies and things are operating around us and well we know this for a fact and wow we've just discovered you can see polluted water you know the biases are so like you know the systems of dominance are not going to collapse. And like even when you were saying the thing about the coronavirus there, David, I was thinking, well, well, much of what's happening is to protect economic systems rather than to protect individuals. There was a point even in the UK where they explicitly were like, well, let's just try this herd immunity thing. And then people were like, well, that's going to mean this number of people will die. And and I think it's only because a lot of people didn't want their grandparents to die that they, that they balked at it. That's right. But the fact is, it is there, the, the people and the governments did balk at that in the end. In other words, it's okay for everyone to throw out their hypotheses of like, hey, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that, because this is totally uncharted territory for everyone involved. So for someone to say, look, we can't let the economy do this, let's go back. That didn't happen. Everybody has said, you know, nope, schools are staying shut down, cities are staying shut down. And in other words, the science has won. Which is kind of amazing. Yes, it is in a sense. But what about, let's take like a historic example like the end of slavery. I feel that it's like people start to think, hang on a minute, this isn't right. For you know, a couple of centuries, yeah, this is cool. There's no problem. Let's keep this out. Then eventually the sort of the campaign for abolition becomes more popularized. People start to viscerally understand, hold on, this is wrong. But then what social adjustments are actually made in the subsequent centuries? What are the, is the current impact of those decisions? My, to, to simplify this if yet further, um, like uh, my feeling is that the sort of decision that gets made after the abolition of slavery is what's the how can we maintain domination of a worker class as best as possible? But we can't actually do literal slavery anymore. The game's up. But what we can do is this sort of close version, zero-hour contracts, immigrant labour, disposable life, outsourcing to countries that haven't progressed or if progress is the right word, aren't on the same page about labour laws or child... You know, so I still think that there are somewhat, not mendacious, but profit-oriented motives present you know, so like with something like, you know, we'd say, oh, we've really improved. We've progressed out of slavery. I would say, yeah, the bare minimum, you know, like the bare minimum. And I think in a sense that your field of expertise and the some of the others that you are au fait and familiar with operate somewhat as false markers because there is evident progress, you know, from the you know even in the time since Carl Sagan. We think fucking hell, humanity is really coming along. But I think in other areas, that kind of the the. Um, correlative progress is impeded because of social, financial, and and uh, other imperatives, political imperatives. Yeah, that is totally right. That's totally right. Each thing requires examination on its own. Uh, you know, you're you're totally right. That's why I am so optimistic because I'm just in the world of science and see all the stuff going on. But you, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about these structures. And you're less optimistic about that, and I see why. I'm optimistic about change. I'm optimistic about human beings. I'm optimistic about beauty. I just feel that unless we somehow are able to uh, metastasize this knowledge into social change, it will just become another product. Someone will work out another app on an iPhone from that water thing or a way of selling it back to us or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the good news, the good news, I think, is this thing that I brought up before, which is that when when science can be there and sort of be ready 
when a county runs out of money and says, Jesus, what are we going to do with all these inmates? We don't have enough room to do this. If science can be there to say, hey, look, here's a different idea. Um, we can sort of take advantage of these systems to, to say, look, you can actually save money this way. And they say, well, we've never thought about rehabilitating people, but if I can you know, keep my profit, then let's do it. You're right. And I think you're right that that is the language that will be most effective, you know, the, the sort of profit oriented, scientifically underwritten. Um, but like, um, you know, sort of my point would be that, you know, the reason that those, you know, like already we know the impact of privatization on prisons. We know who the type of people are that end up in prison. And that's where my it's not actually cynicism. It's more like sort of um, passion and a kind of an agenda really a cynicism about a sort of a prevailing mentality, but not per, per cynicism about our condition more broadly. Do, do you have an opinion or, or a, a pathway that you think about, about moving society to a place where it is not profit driven by individuals where fundamentally they're not saying, how do I gain from this situation? Personal awakening, a kind of, um, evangelicism uh, like a sort of evangelicism for people awakening as individuals and and then a sort of decentralization model where possible that power should be in the hands of the people most affected by it to ask people to question the sort of most um, cherished or even unconscious is perhaps a better word ideals about the way that power structures are set up oh we have the state now well the state's a relatively modern idea is it working do we need that is it good to govern people in groups of 300 million is that working for everyone is in the like i read the other day that um the duke of westminster had donated 12 million pound to the nhs or whatever but sort of in the same article it said he's got five billion and it's like the duke of westminster that's just someone that's family's had that money for hundreds and hundreds of years and at some point if you look back far enough a bunch of people killed another bunch of people and took that money. And, you know, and I, and I feel that those kind of story, I feel that we could mobilize a narrative about people taking back power. But I think that for it to not just, you know, replace the kind of mentality that I'm currently critiquing, you would have to have, well, the only place I've seen them legitimately sort of held are in kind of spiritual communities which obviously come with some pretty serious baggage just out of curiosity on this one last point i um <clears throat> sometimes people get their wealth by killing other people and taking the wealth that way what's that? that what like genius and hard work or well exactly that's yeah. the thing i mean I, I i know the history of america better than of england but you know all the major magnates here got there by building the railroad system or the ships or the whatever or you've got yeah it takes someone like elon musk right he's doing he's doing fucking great stuff he's doing really great stuff it's not like he went and took someone else's money um and i think that kahindi andrews the professor of black studies at birmingham university would say that the achievements of carnegie are underwritten by some serious brutality and that you know like the restitution like that the reason that america won't entertain the conversation around restitution to formerly you know if not colonized enslaved people is because it america could not sustain that there would be no america or indeed britain if britain went india have back that you lot have back that persia have back that you know that that's it we're built on a, a 
imperialism and domination and 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 when i say we i mean like you know if unless you are part of a relatively privileged elite then you are similarly subject to that dominion so you know that so i'm not suggesting that elon musk is anything other than a sort of a you know a a, a, a genius and a, a pioneer i'm just saying that currently that all of his ingenuity enters into a system of commerce and commodification that and that there are other more pressing priorities than you know tesla at a time that at the times that we're living in and as long as we have this dominant ideology if it remains unaddressed i think that we're going to experience pretty major cataclysm what do you think well, Les, I just I'm curious about your point of view on this because um, take you and I, right? You mentioned that there's this problem where individuals are not able to self-actualize. You and I are, you know, we're self-actualized. We're doing what we want to do now. Almost certainly, we've had a lot of advantages that we're not even conscious of, things that happened well before we were born that put us there. Um, but I'm curious how you let's just take the two of us as people who are you know trying to actualize ourselves. How do you think about this in terms of restitution and so on? Should should you and I go and find people who were disadvantaged by our ancient ancestors, you know, our, our distant ancestors of a century ago, and do some? I mean, how do you think about restitution with us? I think that that would possibly have more value than the more global ideas that I was discussing, certainly based on experience. Like I found like small acts of compassion and accepting personal responsibility and acting on that have been more, I would say, I don't know, spiritually or psychically, you know, neurologically beneficial to me. You know, I felt better. The most obvious example being once I did this big charity event to raise money for drug addicts recovering drug addicts you know not using drug addicts and that like uh and the, the, uh, while i was there I met my one of my friends who was on the bill had his kid there who was about 20 and he went will you talk to my boy he's having trouble with drugs and that that moment more than the live event that was being televised on the bbc and there was ten thousand people there in the room and it was an arena that had a kind of a, a, a an essential quality to it that far exceeded the more grandly framed philanthropy of the event where I was on a stage. That moment of intimacy with that young man where I sort of said, uh, like, I'm in recovery and this is how I felt and this is why I took drugs and this is why I do it. And if you want me to help you, I'll help you. That had a sort of a value that I can, I can still feel it in me. I can still feel it in me, you know. So, yeah, I, it does have personal implications. I don't see you know, colonialism entirely in the abstract. I recognise that I'm a, 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 a white male. I recognise it more deep that I didn't invent the English language that provides me with a pretty continual revenue stream or the fact that comedy is a valued commodity. All of these things have just fallen into, fallen into my life. And yes, I see that as a kind of a, a, a debt of spirit. And I'd rather it was a debt of spirit than actual money because spirit is limitless and money is limited. <laughs> you know that's a very interesting point and then i gotta go you gotta go too but um it's an interesting point um that you brought up about the big event and then the individual thing <clears throat> i you know i get emails from kids in high school or college who are interested in the brain interested in going into neuroscience and i find that with the you know tv shows i make and the books i write 
those are the things that are the most meaningful when I get one person writing to me and I write back and yeah, I mean, you, you get this all the time. Because of that anthropological thing that we discussed earlier, we can't conceptualize, oh, 10 million people watched my show on science. We can, we can feel, oh my God, that look at the, how that boy just looked at me. I've affected that little person and maybe like in the future they'll say, I did this because you said that. And we don't even know when we're doing those things. You know, it's what we're evolved for. We're not living in the conditions we are evolved for. That's what I'm saying. And I'm not like a Luddite. I'm not saying, you know, far from it. I think we should honour, respect, pursue science, but somehow in harmony with an ideology that acknowledges there are so many things that can never be measured. And those things are you know, like love, you know, although I'm sure that you can measure love in some sort of way with a pulse. That is totally right. You know, what's interesting, though, last thing, uh, is y y you cast it as sort of an ideology, a harmony of the universe thing, but it might also, and, and you uh, alluded to this, it might just be a neurological thing, which is that, you know, I can see that effect that I'm having on that person, and, and this is what we are wired for. We grew up in small groups of almost 200 people, tribes, um, and then... Um, that's what our brains are totally geared for is having a little influence. And exactly as you said, when you stand on a stage or do television, that's never been part of our evolutionary history. We don't know what that is. So, um, yeah, with sort of getting back to our roots. And on some level, those that whole paradigm only exists for economic reasons. Like, you know, when it comes to it, we can have all sorts of uh, Rethian ideas about television and education and conveying a message. But you take the money out of that game, that game's over. So like, so what is it really? Uh, someone, a teacher of mine once said, if you want to know if a relationship with someone in your life is based on the money you pay them, see what happens when you stop giving them the money. And that sort of initiated a period where a lot of relationships I'd lived it ran with an entourage type lifestyle for a while and like it it went away you know thankfully because i became like a you know a father and lived this sort of a different life but you know like i suppose most of the yeah and i but to your point you know we've from the hundreds of thousands of years evolved for particular conditions and now we're abstracted into these sort of fabrications these citadels and i know there are ancient cities but modern urbanization is financially underwritten and much you know so and like how can we operate in that we're adrift like them we're like them kids in that orphanage we're denied the things that we require yeah Although, although maybe, I mean, maybe it could be argued that we have more access to those things because of the technology, right? I mean, if I'm feeling lonely, I just get on social media or whatever. And if I, you know, what, what, what I mean is putting aside the ills of social media, I can, you know, contact a friend in, in two seconds and say, hey, you want to meet for a coffee? So may, maybe we're closer to those things. The reality is, though, that you being and I being able to do that is just a consequence of Facebook harvesting data on us so that they can see which of us are most vulnerable to right wing propaganda or left wing propaganda or whatever, even though we are using it in that way. And I'm only suggesting the removal of that aspect to keep the organs, but sort of take away the whatever morphic field, uh, ideological field holds those organs. The question is, is that like taking away money and seeing the friends disappear? The question is, can, can an open source Facebook be built where people come to it and they have socialized and no data is getting harvested from it? Um, maybe. That's interesting. You know, there is a big open source movement. A lot of programmers like doing stuff for, for ideological reasons. That's a very, I, I'd never had that idea before. 
uh, that th thank you for that suggestion about could could we build a Facebook that is uh, that removes all the other stuff and just leaves the good stuff? Uh, yeah, and 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 I suppose that's what I'm, with all progress, I wonder if that can be done. I mean, there's obviously a, a consequence. Human beings, you know, we're bloody complex and diverse and. Uh, 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 but uh, at least if the bias or at least the intention was towards like okay these are this is what we you know almost like what's already written into the bloody constitution <laughs> so like it doesn't even need to be redone it just needs to be lived by interesting very cool love it thanks david just a, an honor to talk to you. you're absolutely fantastic i hope we get to communicate again i'm going to send you an email great Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from me, Russell Brand, with David Eagleman. I hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any comments about that, why don't you send them to me on, you know, Twitter. I'm at Rusty Rockets there and at Russell Brand everywhere else, like Instagram. Also, check out my wife at, at The Joy Journal and uh, look at her new book. We'll put a link to her new book on craft and joy, uh, the cra craft and the joy of parenting called The Joy Journal. Also, that's the, that's the phrase to remember. Uh, our next episode of Under the Skin is on Saturday the 25th of April with Ricky Gervais. It's a, we've already recorded it. It was a fantastic conversation. Um, I'm very, very excited for you to hear it. It's, a, you know, it's Ricky Gervais, for God's sake. Anil, uh, in the meanwhile, why don't you go and listen to some old ones of these? Anil Seth, fantastic conversation. Professor Barry Smith, Professor Sophie Scott. Oh, hello, darling. Great conversations. And keep checking my YouTube channel for new videos and get on my goddamn mailing list, russellbrand.com. That's under the skin from Luminary Media.